May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, can you tell the difference between a ministry that brings life and a ministry that kills? What is the core essential element that makes a ministry powerful? What makes a ministry effective? Is this church here really a church at all? If you're thinking about Christian things, you're, you're here to look into Christianity, heaven and hell is at stake. So is the teaching of this church real? Because we want surely to be receiving a, a real, powerful and effective ministry. That is what's at stake in our passage this morning. Back in verse 3, last week, have a look at it. Paul has already pointed to the Corinthians uh, as evidence that his ministry is effective. If, he says that the proof of my ministry is you. You were converted. You were changed. You are the proof that my ministry is competent. Paul is a competent ministry, minister. But the question that was left hanging from last week is, why is Paul competent? And more to the point, how do we tell in our day and age whether the ministry here, or frankly anywhere else, is like Paul's ministry? A competent, effective ministry. You'll have noticed, as Sonny was reading so well for us, the stark contrast that runs right through our passage. Two types of ministry are being contrasted, both available to the Corinthians. One that brings life, and the other which brings death. And so Paul wants to train the Corinthians and us to be good judges of a ministry. And judging is, is a good analogy for what, what's going on here because the people of Corinth, they're like Simon Cowell. They are looking for the X factor. And the Corinthians love a showman. I mean, that's constitutionally true for people who lived in Corinth anyway. And it's true for the church. And into the church have come real showmen. They're a rock band called the Super Apostles. They sort of like Paul, but with their pants on the outside and a cape on. They're, they are super Jewish, we find out, in 11 verse 22. They're the most Jewish Bible teachers around, and they are brilliant. They have the skills that kill. They, they're trained orators. They're, they're skilled wordsmiths. They're like beat poets. They're, they're so impressive. And they, they watch Paul take the stage, and they mock him because he's so weak. He trips over his words. Good in the letter, terrible in person, they say. But just look across at 5 verse 12 with me, would you? It's just on the other leaf in front of you. Paul says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen. These guys are all about the show. And they're good at it. They're proud of their gifts, their reputation, their letters of recommendation we saw last week. It's all about the externals. Now, I take it most of you guys are not here because you're looking for the smartly dressed vicar. You're never going to find that, at least when I'm standing up here. You're not going to find the trendy visuals. You're not going to get the eloquence of the pastor. But the truth is, the same temptation is there for us in our day as was there for the Corinthians, maybe in a slightly different form. And maybe we trust in good music. After all, Andy runs Music Ministry UK, and we do have a pretty good music group here. I think you'll agree. Maybe that's where the power lies. 
for an effective church ministry. And certainly there are churches that invest huge sums of money in making sure they've got the best instruments and the best musicians and the best lighting rig and the best smoke machines. That's true. Or maybe our confidence is in size. And we're not a massive church, but if you've been here for, for a number of years, you'd look around this morning and think, gosh, this is it's really impressive. The church has grown. It's encouraging. We're, we're stable. We're, we're, we're a growing church. And maybe we trust too much in the skills of Andy or myself or, or, or the team or the elders or whatever it is. We trust in cleverness. Or maybe it's buildings. Our churches love their buildings, don't we? And we're hoping this year, hoping and praying that God will move us into a, a bigger building so we can keep growing. I put down long-term roots in our own space Use a building all week long for all sorts of things. Have space for kids' work to grow. Things like that. Wouldn't it be great? But is having our own building and and a a prominent uh, facade in the community the key to a powerful and effective ministry? Is anything external the key? Because the super apostles in Corinth have made ministry all about how impressive they are. Of course, if, if that's real ministry, then for a small church like ours, that's very disheartening, isn't it? Because all of these externals take they, they money and people and skills to build up. If, if real church isn't achieved until you're big and impressive and you have the best speakers and the best music and the best buildings and the best everything, well, then we're not a real church at all. But Paul wants us to look away from the externals altogether. As we'll see over the the coming weeks, ministries are meant to be weak-looking. They're meant to be unimpressive, which is a relief to some of us, I have to say. Instead, Paul wants us to see that what the minister teaches is what matters. Our aim mustn't be, our question must not be, does the minister seem powerful and effective? Our question must be, Does the ministry have a powerful effect in the life of the church? Do you see the difference? And it's at this point we must be very, very precise. We must be most careful. Because it's tempting for us, isn't it, to say the minister must teach the Bible. Teach the people from the Bible, if we're being more accurate. But the truth be told, you'll rarely go to a church anywhere. Anything claiming to be a church and the Bible isn't opened. People aren't teaching, sort of bouncing off the text at the very least. Does that mean everything that's taught in every church is helpful? Builds the church? No, of course not. So we need to be more precise, don't we? Because Paul wants us to be persuaded in our first point, this. There is a Bible teaching that kills. There's a Bible teaching that kills. Just look at verse 14 with me. Their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has, uh, it has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. And what's true then is true for us. There is a way of teaching the Old Testament uh, in which the truth remains veiled. Imagine an old country house where you know, they've got those big white dust sheets over all the furniture to stop them being eaten by moths or whatever. Imagine you're a you're, you're a, an expert in antiques and you're invited into this big old house and you think, gosh, I've got, it's brilliant. I've got a whole week just valuing and, and investigating all the wonderful old things in this house. It's brilliant. Love it. But the people who own the house say, you can't take any of the dust sheets off. And so everything remains veiled. 
And, and even as an expert in antiques, you're looking at these things and you can sort of work out that's a couch and that's a bureau and that's a four-poster bed. But beyond that, what can you say? You, you can't tell whether it's treasure or junk because you just can't see it. And so it is with the Old Testament law. The super apostles can read the words of the Old Testament. They can talk for hours in eloquent uh, language. But the truth remains hidden. Hidden because these super apostles have no interest in Jesus. Just think about what the Old Covenant was for a moment. A covenant is a contract, and the Old Covenant is a contract between God and his people. And it was incredible. That that language of glory through verses 7 to 11 is true. It came with glory. It really did. Of all the nations in the whole world... Only the Israelites had God living amongst them in a tent right in the middle of their community. And they had Moses who could go in and talk to God face to face in the tent. So much so that he would come out from meeting God with a glowing face, bright like the day sun. Of all the nations on earth, they had God speaking to them saying, this is how I want you to live, to be my people, to be my treasured possession, for me to bless you and keep you. Live in my world my way and it will go well with you. But notice the two things about the Old Covenant that that Paul emphasises here. It brought death and it was temporary. Do you see that? uh, Paul's words, verse 6, the letter kills. Verse 7, the ministry that brought death. Verse 9, the ministry that brought condemnation. God gave them his law to show them what a godly life looked like, but it didn't help them to actually achieve it. That doesn't mean the law was defective. The law is is good and perfect and true and it remains so today as we read the law. I encourage you to do that. We see what is so wrong in our world today and how we should be different. We do see goodness in the law. But the law is a set of rules on the outside that can do nothing to change the heart on the inside. The people had stony hearts, barely alive, unwilling to obey. So although the law promised life to those who kept it, it never delivered life to anyone because the people never obeyed. And so it brought condemnation. You have failed to keep God's standards. It brought judgment. You deserve to be punished. And it brought that punishment, which was death. The ministry of God's good word was death to the people. The law was like a medicine that should make us better, but actually, because we're allergic to that medicine, it kills us. The problem is not in the medicine itself, but in the person who is receiving it. And as a result, it had limited glory for a limited time. It was temporary. It couldn't be God's ultimate solution to the problem of sin and death. And Moses veiled his face. Yes, to hide the glory from the people who couldn't cope with it, but actually to hide the fact that it was fading. The longer Moses was away from the tent, the less the glory shone. It was a a picture of the way that this covenant was going to pass the law was never able to deal with the problem of sin in the human heart or God's wrath at sin it could never save of course at this point you might be saying well why on earth did God give that covenant then well I'm going to give you three reasons I'm not going to explain the reasons come and talk to me afterwards if you want me to do that it goes slightly off the point of the passage and we've got lots to cover so let me give you three reasons I'm sure there are many more but here's three first the law was given as a nanny as a guardian, 
uh, training wheels for the people of God to learn what it was to be God's people, to restrain evil. That's what Galatians uh, tells us. Uh, Secondly, it shows us that we cannot obey God. It shows us that we need a saviour. That's what Romans teaches us. And thirdly, the sacrificial system, which is all through the law, the vast majority of the law is about the, the temple and the furnishings and the priesthood and the sacrifices, pointed us to how Jesus would deal with sin once and for all through his own sacrifice of himself. Back to our passage. The problem here in Corinth is that the super apostles are teaching the law as if Christ has not come yet. They're teaching it as if the law is the right way to get, to get right with God. And we need to be careful, don't we? God still loves it when people obey him. He still loves it when people do the things the law says. But that's not the same as trying to keep the law in order to get right with God. Those are two different things. The covenant, that that contract is finished. It's over. It's done with. It's been replaced by a better one. But these super apostles, they keep teaching the law as if it's still in place. Verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. For what was glorious, that's the old covenant, has no glory now. Why? Because if you compare it to the surpassing glory of the new covenant that's come, it's as dull, it's nothing. It's like like the star in the sky to the sun when it comes up. You can't see the stars because the sun's out. They're still there. But their glory is completely faded. They are teaching a covenant that leads to condemnation and death as if it has the power to bring life. Impressive, powerful showmanship killing the church. Every religion and worldview that says you can get right with God by doing good things, by, by doing the right things, whatever the religion or worldview thinks are the right things in that particular context, they are parodying the old covenant, the covenant that has passed. What does Paul say? Let me read from 11 verse 4 for you. If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. It's a different gospel. They're standing in church with the Bible open. It's a different gospel. It's a different Jesus. And so what does he say of the super apostles? 11 verse 13. Such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. They open the Bible up and they kill people with it. And Paul calls them satanic. He says they're servants of the devil. And the effect on the Corinthians is is desperate, isn't it? 6 verse 1, is your faith in vain? Are you giving up on Jesus? The law of God is a good thing. It teaches us what God loves and hates, but it cannot be the basis for our relationship with him. It cannot be. We need a better covenant. We need, secondly, Bible teaching that transforms. See, when it comes to externals, Paul is pathetic. He's weak. He's a broken man. If powerful and effective ministry relies on presence and presentation, well, Paul is hopeless, beyond hopeless. But in fact, look at verse 12, what Paul says here. We are very bold. 
Not bold because he has, he's impressive himself. Bold in his preaching, bold in his ministry. Why? What makes Paul so confident that his ministry is going to have a profound effect on the people in front of him? It's not himself. There's nothing in Paul to be impressive. Well, Paul makes three comparisons for us to show us why the new covenant is infinitely better than the old. At first, look at verse 11. You have the transitory old covenant and you have the greater glory of that which lasts. The lasting covenant. The old covenant has passed away. Its glory has faded. It was waiting all the time for a new covenant that has now arrived. This covenant is enduring. It is permanent. Its glory never fades. It's a lasting permanent covenant for us. But why can this one remain? That's the question. Why can this one remain? Well, secondly, second contrast. Where the old one brought condemnation and death, this one, verse 9, brings righteousness. Righteousness. The law, you see, the law of God demanded righteousness. But because of our sin, it could never deliver righteousness. It could never deliver a righteous life. But this new covenant brings righteousness. It brings righteousness in two ways. Two ways. Just look on to 5 verse 21 with me. This is a verse that probably you ought to learn. It's a great summary of the work of Jesus. We'll get there in a few weeks' time. It's the reason that Jesus' coming puts an end to the old covenant. 5 verse 21. God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is Paul saying? We have Jesus. He knew no sin. He was utterly sinless. The only person who completely fulfilled all the requirements of the law. He is the one person who could stand before God righteous on the terms of the old covenant. But having fulfilled the demands of the old covenant, he, he changed places with us. The, the language is from the courtroom. Jesus comes into the courtroom and he stands in the dock in our place. He takes all of the sin, all the guilt, all the shame that belongs to us and says they're mine. They belong to me. And I will be punished for them. And he died in our place. At the same time, we walk out of the dock and take his place. We are given his righteous life, even as our sinful life is given to him. We clothe ourselves in his righteousness. So that before God, it is as if, it is as if we have never sinned. That is how God sees us. As if we had never sinned. We are declared righteous. And at the point where God declares us righteous, it is so. We are right with God. It's the great exchange. Now this is open to anyone. Perhaps you're not yet somebody who's put their trust in Jesus. This is open to you today. Make the exchange today and be put right with God today. It's open to everyone, but it's only true for those who have put their faith in Jesus in his death and resurrection. Trusting that this exchange is actually real for them. That's why the super apostles are so satanic. They're asking the Corinthians to trust in themselves rather than Jesus. And Martin Luther called this trust in Jesus a marriage. You know, in a marriage, you know, uh, one person brings their great wealth, one person brings their great debt, and you kind of, you put them together, and they both belong to each other. At least that was our experience. You bring those two things together, and what's mine is yours, and yours is mine. And in this case, Jesus' life and deeds and righteousness belong to us. And all of our sin and guilt and shame are his. That is the exchange that Jesus makes. But here are the super apostles coming into the church in Corinth and demanding that the people divorce Jesus. 
Give Jesus up as your righteousness and become righteous in yourself, according to the old covenant. They are preaching death to the people of God. And why would you preach law when Jesus has brought righteousness by grace? So Paul goes on, because there's a second way that righteousness comes. There's, there's our right standing before God, which never changes if we're trusting in Jesus. We are righteous today before God. He treats us as his children, bearing the family likeness because of Jesus. But there's a second way that righteousness comes in this passage. And it's the third contrast that Paul makes. And it's the, the difference between the letter and the spirit. Verse 8, it is the ministry of the spirit which is more glorious. See, the old law, the old covenant is outside of us. And it can't affect a change of our hearts because it's outside. The heart's on the inside. There's no change of status. We are still before God as unrighteous people. And back then, only Moses got to see God's face, didn't he? Face to face. Well, under the new covenant, everyone who trusts in Jesus gets the spirit of God living inside us. Inside us. We are the tent of meeting. You and me. Made righteous, a fit dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And that's really important, isn't it? Because whereas the law on the outside could never penetrate and change us, the Spirit on the inside can. Just look at verses 16 to 18. It's really where the passage is heading. And here Paul wants us to see two effects of the Spirit living inside us that add up to a glorious present transformation. Verse 16. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. The veil is, is the, the shadow that means we cannot see the truth in the gospel. But, and so with the veil in place, you just don't see what the Bible is really saying. Maybe you're here as somebody who's not yet trusting in Jesus. And you're listening to this and you can see the words on the page. You can hear the words I'm saying. And you say, it still doesn't make any sense to me at all. You might as well be speaking in double Dutch. That is the veil over the heart, over our mind, so that we cannot see the truth of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But when we turn to Jesus and trust in him, the veil is lifted. And many of us will know that experience. We turn to Christ and suddenly pennies just dropped into place. It suddenly makes sense. I'm not saying everything makes sense straight away. I'm not saying that it's easy to read the Bible, but it makes sense to us. And we can now see what the law is pointing to. It's always pointing towards the need for Christ. Was showing us what Jesus would be like so we'd recognise him when he came. And that's really important, isn't it? The veil is lifted. We can see the truth. That's totally critical to verse 18, which is where we're, we're going to land here. It's one of my favourite verses in the Bible. And this is why. We all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the Spirit's work in us. It's the second way in which the Spirit transforms us. With unveiled faces, we contemplate the Lord's glory. And we see the beauty of God radiating out of the face of Jesus. And we see him on every page of scripture, in in its types and its promises and its fulfilments, in every part of the Bible. Not just the cross, although the cross is absolutely critical to getting us right with God, but actually Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his roles, in all of the ways in which he fulfills the scriptures. And here's where it gets properly exciting. Did you notice that? As we contemplate Jesus' beauty, we get changed, bit by bit. 
into his likeness. Made in the image of God and now a broken likeness. Being restored to the image of God as we contemplate the glory of Jesus. We can't keep the law by ourselves. You probably tried. You know, I must do this better. This time I will not fail in this way. And of course we try really hard and it doesn't do any good because it can't change our hearts. Law doesn't work. But as we dwell on Jesus, as we see him from every angle, as we delight in him, we get to become like him. As we love him more, so we become like the thing we love. Isn't that right? We always become like the thing we love most. And we become like him little by little. And because Jesus kept the law perfectly, actually what happens is we begin to keep the law. Not because we're studying the law, because we're studying Jesus, who kept the law. The very thing the super apostles are teaching... Paul's preaching achieves, changes them to make them better people, transforms them into the likeness of Christ, without having to ever teach the law, actually, although we should teach the law in its right way. The new covenant makes us right before God, clothed in Christ's righteousness, but it also makes us increasingly like him as we dwell on Jesus. Now do you see why Paul is so bold? The power is not in him, it's not in his eloquence or his, his stature or his reputation. It's in the fact that he preaches a gospel that by the Spirit transforms people for eternity. So what are we going to rely on here at CCE? Will it be numbers or, or buildings or music or anything else external? Or will we trust that God, by his Spirit shows us the majesty of Jesus in the scriptures and that is everything. That is everything. Tremendously unimpressive and yet utterly transformative. It is the one thing that will change us and change our community and change the world to be like Christ. That's why our Bible teaching is the centre of what we do on Sundays because we want to lift up at Jesus and magnify him so that our hearts are turned to him again. It's why we do, I guess, a fairly hardcore home group. Now, those of you who've, who are part of our home groups, most of you are part of one of our home groups. We take showing you Jesus in the scriptures very seriously. We want your hearts to be warm to him, know him more, see his glory more. And also we want to train you week by week to read the Bible for yourself so that you can go and look at any part of the scriptures and see the glory of God in the face of Christ on every page. Well, let me, as we come to the end, draw out a serious application of this point. Perhaps an application that will change all our lives here. So note this well. Do you find that you're trapped in sin? Do you find that as you try to fight sin, you just fail constantly? Do you feel guilty about that sin? Do you find that your first love for Jesus has begun to grow cold in some way? <coughs> Do you find, in fact, that your, your devotions have become quite perfunctory? You get your Bible out, and you're quite tired, and you read a few verses, and you don't really make much sense of them, but you hope that the words will do something inside you somewhere, and you, you, you say some prayers, and you get on. Do you see how all those things are related? If we're not seeing the glory, the beauty, the majesty of Jesus, if we're not going to delight in him, how are we ever going to become like him? How can we expect the, the words of the scriptures to magically change us if we don't see the glory of Jesus? 
Not by trying harder. You put your Bible down and try to be a better Christian and you fail and, and the law doesn't work. It doesn't change us. If we don't look to the glory of the work of Christ, then of course we'll feel guilty, won't we? If we don't see the majesty of the cross, if we're trying to earn our right standing before God by the things that we do, and of course we fail and we feel guilty, we feel like God doesn't care. We feel condemned. We feel the condemnation of the old covenant, don't we? But brothers and sisters, let me say this to you very clearly. Christ has died for your sins and mine. If you are trusting him, if you've just turned to trust him in the last ten minutes... You can leave those sins at the cross and your guilt and your shame. Leave it all there. You can walk out of here completely free. God looks on you as he looks on his son. We are his children, restored to his fellowship and righteous in his sight. But we've got to go further. Perhaps you know that feeling. You've been out on a cold winter's day. You you go for a walk and... The walk becomes a much longer walk than you were expecting and the weather's got much worse than you were expecting and you weren't really dressed for it properly and so you get home and, and the chill's gone right through your clothes, through to your very bones. You know that feeling? That sort of, uh, you can't quite even bend your fingers anymore because they're so numb that you feel like they're going to crack off if you, uh, if you try to bend them too much. You're borderline hypothermic and you get into the building. In, you know, maybe you go to a country pub and, and there's a roaring fire in the grate and you, you sort of fold yourself cracking in front of the fire and you think gosh this is going to save my life and it begins to warm you now if you spend five minutes in front of the fire for that five minutes you'll feel warm won't you but you'll get up on your walk away and you'll suddenly feel the cold in your bones again but if you sit for hours until the fire has warmed you through to the very core well, the glow comes back to your own skin, doesn't it? And, and uh, the fire dances in your eyes and you feel like you're a transformed person. Brothers and sisters, if we spend time, a very little time with Jesus, and if we don't really even see Jesus in the scriptures when we read them, then <laughs> is it any wonder if we've grown cold? If we've grown stale in our Christian life, if, if our conversations are Christ-less, if our sins are overtaking us, is it a surprise? So let me tell you what I don't want you to do this week. I don't want you to read your Bibles. I don't. Unless by reading your Bible you're growing to love Jesus more. Don't sit down with the Bible unless you want to see Jesus. And, and don't plan to get up again until you have seen the glory of Jesus now you're going to struggle to do that I'm going to struggle to do that because life is busy so let me encourage you to get something to help you get a book, so whatever it is you're studying don't, don't get a book like this one this is one of my many commentaries on 2 Corinthians don't get that, that's not going to help you with your devotions, it's too big and there's far too much in there but if you're reading Old Testament narrative, we've said this before, we've, we've talked through 1 and 2 Samuel, and both Andy and I love Dale Ralph Davis. He's very, very practical, shows you the glory of Jesus in the Old Testament. Why not read that alongside the bit of Bible that you're reading? Or um, J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospels. Doesn't say everything you'd want to say, but he's immensely practical and he glorifies Jesus all the time. Pick a little bit of the Bible and let uh, Bishop Ryle take you to, to the glory of Christ. Or... Uh, the Bible Speaks Today commentary series, very, very simple. I'm, I'm uh, preparing Ecclesiastes for our home groups next year, and this is one of the books I've got on my shelf. Derek Kidner, he's brilliant. Not long, 
half a page maybe on the bit you're reading in your devotions, but it will uh, let somebody else point you to Jesus. See the glory of Jesus in your devotions. I want you to do something else. I've often said, uh, don't listen to sermons by other people uh, because your church is where pastoral care happens. Do you know, I've changed my mind this week. <laughs> I've changed my mind because I want you to have people in your life who are pointing you to Jesus. So download the Tim Keller sermons. He's not always right, but he's mostly right. <laughs> D- download John Piper, same, same principle. Listen to them on your commute. Listen to them when you're doing the washing up. Listen to them in the shower, for goodness sakes. Listen to people who are going to point you to the glory of Jesus so that wherever you are, whenever you are, your hearts are being warmed as you follow Christ. Draw near to the fire until it burns within you. Do everything you can do to pursue Christ. Not the Bible, but Jesus. Contemplate. That's a, that's a dwelling word, isn't it? It's a sitting and staring like you would do with a, with a great painting in an art gallery. You sit there and you, you just... You drink it in from every angle. That's what it's saying. Contemplate the Lord's glory. And when you sin, as you will do, apologise for that and go straight back to the Bible and contemplate the Lord's glory again. I'd love you to do that. I'd love you to have a Bible in your desk at work if if you go to work. I'd love you to have, if that's too conspicuous, have a printout from a a passage of scripture shoved inside a workbook so nobody knows you're reading the Bible even. You just open it. I'm being really diligent. Um, and you're reading the scriptures and you're letting Christ warm your heart let your mind be filled with Jesus this week let the contemplation of Christ be the the priority for your life and you will become like him watch as you get victory over your struggles watch as we become a community in the image of Christ I'm going to end with one of my favourite other verses uh, on the same theme from uh, 1 John chapter 3. It tells us, in the end, how is it that we become like Christ in in perfection? How is it we are made perfect? And notice how it is uh, exactly the same as how we grow to be like him today. Dear friends, 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Perfect in every way. For we shall see him as he is. May it be our ambition, brothers and sisters, to see Christ as he is more and more, day by day, while we are here. For that is what we will do for eternity. Let's pray. (coughs) Our Father, we are content to be a church which is unimpressive in so many ways. If you will continue to give us visions of the glory of the Lord Jesus. Uh, We long to be those who are transformed into his likeness. We know the struggles and we delight in the cross which has paid for them all. But please would you make it our ambition in every way, in every stage, in every conversation, in every uh, free bit of time, in every way that we can. Point us, show us by your spirit the glory of the Lord Jesus that we might become like him, that we might have victory over sins that have dogged us for years that our conversations with each other will be of the joy of following the Lord Jesus and being like him. We long for these things and we pray for them in his great and glorious name. Amen.